In life or in death, Lord, abide with me. Have you ever wondered what your last words would be on this world before you died? Final words are telling. I have a book of deathbed quotations. It's quite revealing. On Sundays, we've recently been studying the Passion Week in Mark. It's just a few days away before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and death. Where we are on Sunday mornings is that long Tuesday before the Friday, the Good Friday. We've been seeing in chapter 12 of Mark that religious leaders come with their questions, their challenges to Jesus. And then Jesus, after answering each of them and stumping them each time, he initiates a response of his own. He initiates a question for the religious leaders. Mark 12 and verse 35 to 37, you might remember there, Jesus asked that question, how was the Christ, both David's Lord and David's son? How can he be older and younger? How can he be before and after? Of course, we know that means he is both God and man. That's what Jesus says to the religious leaders in these closing days, even almost closing hours before the cross. What does he say to the disciples? Well, that's actually what we'll see this coming Sunday in Mark 13, where we come to Mark's longest recorded speech from Jesus. He gives a long speech to the disciples filled with apocalyptic language. It's powerful, it's rich, it's confusing, it's wonderful. Hopefully we'll see a Sunday. But the length of it in Mark really pales in comparison with a different speech or really almost a mingling of speeches that we find in John, in John's gospel. Would you turn to John 15 with me tonight? You might remember from our last Lord's Supper service when we were in John 13 and 14, and there we reminded ourselves that from John 13 to 17, we have Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. Five long chapters on that Thursday evening alone with the disciples before before Gethsemane, and then the arrest, and then the trials, and then, of course, the next day, crucifixion. These are some of Jesus' final words before the very final hours of his arrest and crucifixion and death. It's not just important that he's about to die. There's gravity to that, of course. But here in John 15, remember that in the resurrection and ascension, he'll leave the disciples We saw that last Lord's Supper, John 13 and 14, I go away. I'm going to leave you. And they were quite troubled by that. He's going to leave the disciples. And so as he speaks to them, he's summarizing. He's summarizing his teaching. He's giving final instructions, things they need to know. Imagine if you've got maybe late teenagers, 18, 19, or something like that. You're going on vacation without them, perhaps, or one of them is staying home. And, you know, mom or dad might list the final instructions several times, the the really important things, right? This is what you do in case of a fire, or if you hear someone in the middle of the night, here's what you do. Well, we have in Scripture these final words from Jesus, and they're not just here in Scripture because he said them and because it happened, but also because they're so useful for us, because they're so important for us as Christians, even today, almost 2,000 years after. They're telling about the Savior's heart. 
in what we need to know and what we need to do. Let's read John 15, 1 to 17, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Well, there's some structure to what Jesus says here, but there's also a whole lot of overlap, repetition, circling back. You might have noticed, especially the words abide. That's all throughout this this passage. Love and fruit. Those themes just sort of get mingled about all throughout. So I think it might be more useful for us rather than sort of take it in sections to sort of take three different passes over the same verses tonight. So we can categorize these passes with three R's. Realities, requirements, and results. What are the realities that this passage tells us? I think there are seven of them. You probably won't write these down, that's fine, but I'll just let you know, I have seven. Realities. Here's a reality, that Jesus is the true vine in the Father's garden. He's the true vine. Verse 1, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Now, this was common imagery in the Old Testament for Israel and her relationship to God. God had a garden in this word picture, and Israel was a vine in it, in a vine that was to, to bear fruit. However, in Almost all of these Old Testament passages that talk of Israel as a vine, it's spoken of negatively. So like in Psalm 80 or Isaiah 5 or all through Ezekiel, 
it's talking about how Israel was to be the vine, and she would bear fruit, or should bear fruit, but instead she was barren. She was dead on the vine, no fruit. And then God judges her for it. There are only a couple of places in the Old Testament where the imagery of vine and garden in relationship to Israel and God is used in any kind of hopeful way at all. One is Isaiah 27. Verse 2 of Isaiah 27. In that day, God says, a a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. And then verse 6, in days to come, in that day, in days to come, that's, that's future promise kind of language, isn't it? In those days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and shall put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Well, that's a lofty promise to come, and one that wasn't happening or being fulfilled in the time of Jesus. And that's why 600 years after Isaiah recorded that prophecy from the Lord, Jesus came and said, I am the true vine. It was staggering. What he was saying there was that he's God, that he's the new Israel, that God was planting afresh. I am the true vine. That's one reality. A second reality is that all of life, therefore, all of health, all of fruitfulness, all of flourishing flows from the Father through Christ and Christ alone. The Father's the vine dresser and Jesus is the fruitful vine. We're the branches. There's no other way for us to ever be fruitful, for us to flourish, for us to have true life, for us to have true health, true shalom or peace. There's no other source for it but Christ. Verse 4. Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, you know that from a branch laying on the ground at your house. It can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And that famous line in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not little things, not some things. You can do nothing apart from him. It was an earth-shattering statement for Jesus to say he was the true vine. And therefore, all health, flourishing, fruitfulness, life comes through him and through him only. Third, another reality is that those who are attached to Christ and abide in him will bear fruit. They will bear fruit. Verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It's impossible to be attached to the vine of Christ and not in some measure in some form, bear fruit. A fourth reality is that he will prune his fruit bearers to bear even more fruit. He will prune, verse 2 tells us, the second half of it. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. That pruning, we know from experience, is painful. We also know from experience, maybe though not in the middle of the pruning itself, We know from experience afterwards, he's faithful. It's painful, 
He's faithful. It was for our good. We do bear fruit when we're pruned, when we're cut, and then we grow. A fifth reality is that fruitless branches do not abide in him, and they will not remain. There are fruitless branches, and those fruitless branches do not abide in him, and they will not remain. That's the first half of verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It's, it's not connected. It's sort of connected. It's not truly connected or it would bear fruit. Verse 6 makes it more clear. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown to the fire and burned. Detached branches can't bear fruit. They do not abide and hence, they aren't alive, and they go where dead things go. Now, this isn't saying that some were truly attached to Christ, but only for a little while. Then they blew it somehow, and then he cut them off, threw them aside, dried them up, and burned them. No, it, what it's telling us is that some do identify with Christ, but not savingly. And hence, eventually, they come to prove that they never really had him to begin with, either by their actions, more importantly, by their lack of repentance, or by their denial of the faith, they come to prove that they never really had it. Judas Iscariot is in this category. He was a son of perdition, we're told, a son of judgment. He's different than Peter, Peter denied the Lord three times, very severely. And he went out afterwards and wept bitterly. And the Lord Jesus, at the end of John, restored him beautifully. He was restored. He's, he's a believer. We'll see Peter in heaven. Not Judas, though. We can think of Mark chapter 4 or any of the other parallel gospel accounts with the four soils in them. Remember the four soils, four different ways in which the gospel seed is received. There are some you know, soil where the bird comes and takes it away and it never germinates at all. It never seems to take root at all. And then in others, it, it goes in a little bit, but the ground's so shallow and dry that it, it just withers up. And then there's some, it's, you know, it's rocky ground. And, and then, uh, or, or I'm confusing rocky and shallow. Rocky and shallow, the same thing. And then there's the thorny, you know, the, the trials and the worries of this world came and choked out the gospel growth and the gospel actually germinating and bearing fruit. But then there's that fourth soil where the gospel takes root and it grows up and it bears fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Not everyone bears the same amount of fruit, but those who have the real thing take root in their heart, continue to bear fruit for the rest of their lives. However... There are those fruitless branches. They will not abide. They will not remain. Fruit is not the only measure of our assurance, but it is one of them. It is one of them. Yes, the sense of the Spirit in your heart crying adoption, giving you assurance of the Father's love, that is one of the reasons or the marks for believing yourself to be a Christian. 
And another one is what we're talking about here, bearing fruit. John Calvin said, we are saved by grace alone, but never by a faith that is alone. Or the Heidelberg Catechism, half a century after Calvin, said, it is impossible for those who have been grafted into Christ by true faith to not produce fruits of gratitude. But let's move along to other realities. A sixth one, those who do abide in him, or for those whose, for his words abiding in them, like verse 7 says, they can ask anything of him. They can ask anything. If you abide in me, verse 7 says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, just like the previous verses that might be open to misunderstanding, this one is as well. Whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Yeah, that's not a floating promise, though, here. This is not infinite genie promises or, 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 or wishes. What came before it is my words abiding in you. I'm abiding in you. My words abiding in you. So we're asking according to his will. We're asking according to his word. We're, we're praying your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying like Jesus. Uh, here's my request. Nevertheless, let not my will be done, but yours. When we pray like that, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done. On the one hand, we can't abuse that view, that verse and misunderstand it. On the other hand, we can't think that it's not spectacular. It says, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. And a seventh reality is that all of this glorifies God and proves true discipleship. So verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the end for which God created the world. This is the end for which Christ came and lived righteously and died sacrificially. To glorify God. To have disciples. We prove that we're his disciples and we bear much fruit when we abide in him. So that leads us then to the second point, requirements. There are requirements in this passage. You might want to call them responsibilities if requirements too harsh for you, but, but it kind of does go on either one side of the mountain or the other. There's a fulcrum point here. So requirement seems right for me to call these things. Like abiding in him, it's not just a responsibility, it's a requirement, it's a must. Ten times the word abide is found from verses 4 to 10. In seven verses, you've got ten abides. Abide in him. Abide in his word. Let his word abide in you. What does it mean to abide in him? Well, it means to remain with him. It means to stay attached to him. It implies dependence and it implies trust. However, be careful there because abide does not mean some sort of higher plane of Christian living. It doesn't mean superpower Christianity. It's not the equivalent of being in the zone with sports. You know, some players, they get in the zone. He got in the zone. He got 45 points last night. I think some people talk about abiding in Christ as that kind of thing. 
Walking in the Spirit sometimes is abused in that same sort of way or misunderstood in that same sort of way. It's not a higher plane of Christianity. It's not cloud nine Christianity. Abiding in him is not letting go and letting God so much, but there's an effort involved. That idea of abiding in him is often taught and applied quite poorly. It means remaining. It means staying attached to him. Not perfectly, of course, but genuinely so. It means keeping on with the gospel. It means what Paul says in Colossians 1. We continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't shift from it. Don't turn from it. Don't turn away. Don't let go of it. Or as Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And if you say, oh, I I don't know if I hold fast hard enough. But do you hold on to the true confession, the true gospel, or have you turned aside to another? Yes, we all would say, I believe, help my unbelief. It feels like we waver at times but we waver probably in the intensity of our faith. We waver sometimes in the consistency of our faith. What we must not waver in is the object of our faith, that he who promised is faithful. Christ did die in our place for the forgiveness of sins, and he was raised on the third day. This is our gospel. It is of first importance, and that's what we cling to. A second requirement here in John 15 is that we receive his word and we obey his word. Receive his word, obey his word. Did you notice how incredibly word-oriented these verses are? Like in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Or verse 10, if you keep my commandments. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Verse 14, do what I command you. Verse 15, all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Words, words, words. Sometimes Christians pit relationship against the word. Sometimes people talk like, oh, you you, you worship the Bible. You're all about the words. And I just have a relationship with Jesus. But there's no separating Jesus and his words. We abide in him, and then alternatively it's stated, we abide in his words. So have his words on your mind, on your heart. Have them abide in you. A third requirement is that we should ask. We should ask of him. We should pray. Both in verse 7 and in verse 16, we get commandments to ask and to pray. Pray. It's part of abiding in him. It's part of connecting to him. It's part of being in him. We are relating to him. So we're abiding in his love. That's another requirement. Abide in his love. Verse 9 tells us. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Abide in his love. There is something Emotional about that, affectionate about that, relational and communal. And out of that should flow a fifth requirement, loving others. Love others. Verse 12 tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Jesus had already spoken about that in chapter 13, about being a servant, about loving. Now he says it again, and he'll keep saying it all through this, these, these chapters here into chapter 15, 16, and 17. Love one another. Love as I've loved you. Love other Christians not just in theory or from a distance, but meet with them. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here tonight, but continue to meet with the saints and and make sacrifices to meet with the saints. We need each other. This is part of an expression of loving each other. We're not just in the same room for our own individual spiritual purposes here, like we could have stayed home and plugged in and gotten the same thing. You're hopefully here, not just for yourself or for your kids or for your spouse, but for everyone in this room. That's why we sing. That's why we sing to each other. That's why we sing with each other. We don't just meet together. We covenant with each other. We live life out together, not with hundreds of people all at once, not perfectly or intimately, not to the same level as we do with maybe those in our community group or those we happen to be closer with, but we live Life out with people, up close and personal and at times uncomfortably. We help them and we're helped by them. Love others. It's a requirement of Jesus. Sixth, bear fruit. Bear fruit. Bearing fruit was all through verses 2 to 6. And then it doesn't get talked about again until verse 16. Look down at verse 16. There Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now here's the point at which we should ask, what fruit is he talking about? What is the fruit? And you think, perhaps, why even ask the question? Of course we know what fruit is. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc. I'm not so sure this is that kind of fruit. I'm not sure. I would tend to think, and other scholars like D.A. Carson would say, this isn't fruit like fruit of the Spirit or fruit of good works. This is the fruit of converts. This is the fruit of the gospel spreading in this world. This is why I waited to verse 16 to tell you that. Look at verse 16 again. You see, I appointed you. I commissioned you. I messaged you that you should go and bear fruit. That go doesn't have to mean go to a mission field per se, go to a faraway land or to an unreached people group, just like in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go into all the world. Literally in the Greek, it's as you're going through all the world, make disciples of all nations. Not every one of us is called to be a missionary, but all of us are called to be heralds, to be ambassadors. And as we go, we know we're appointed to go. As we go, we remember, just like those first apostles, those disciples, they didn't choose him. He chose them. He chose them and appointed them that they should go and bear fruit. Fruit, the gospel bearing fruit in the world. You see, the the word fruit, that word picture, elsewhere in scripture is used in that kind of gospel spreading way. It's not just used in the Galatians 5 fruit of the Spirit sort of way. But in John 4, listen to this. Maybe turn back there if you want. John 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, as he was there waiting in Samaria for them to come back with food, as he ministered to the Samaritan woman, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. That's what Jesus was doing in Samaria, reaping, gathering fruit. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, the prophets of old, they've all labored in the past, and you have entered into their labor. You see, that farming language is used of gospel spreading, as it is in Colossians 1, where the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel, bearing fruit and increasing. I think that's what Jesus has in mind here in John 15. You are called to bear fruit. Yeah, of course you're called to bear good works. But this passage talks about something else. You are called to spread the gospel, to make disciples, to teach all people. Heavy requirements, aren't they? But thirdly, let's remind ourselves of results. The results. We've seen realities, then requirements, now results. And these results are not so much the results of our fulfilled requirements, but the results of his gifts of grace. The results of the fruit that comes in exec, in exec what's the word I'm looking for? Inexorably? From Jesus. Inexorably. There it is. I even later have it in my notes. Results. Let's talk about some results, even at the risk of some redundancy here. A result is growth, isn't it? We're going to grow. We're not bearing fruit in order to abide, in order to stay, but we're trusting that those who abide and those who stay inexorably, inextricably, bear fruit. They grow. We have a vine dresser who's God. It's his garden, and he will prune. It's painful, but it's faithful. Another result implied in that metaphor of the vine and the branches is dependence, trust, need. It's a good result, isn't it? We should think more on this word picture that we might be humbled. We are, remember that we can do nothing apart from him. A result of all this as we've seen already is that the father is glorified in all this. Verse 8, by this is my father glorified. Do you know the father can be glorified in your imperfect good works? The blood of Christ covers that. I mean, there is something of God actually being honored and liking what we're doing at times. Oh, I, I know, it's filled with bad motive. Yeah, I, we so rarely hit the mark even at all, let alone with our motives as well. And yet, nevertheless, when, when things are done with good intent and unto his glory, he can be glorified. One result from all this is assurance. 
You prove to be my disciples. Keep doing this. You keep proving it. You keep proving it. Do you still abide in him? In other words, do you still confess the same gospel you used to? Or have you turned aside to another gospel? Have you let go of Christ and turned to another Christ? And rejoice, Christian. You're abiding. You're abiding. Oh, at some point, your works may, may call into question the genuineness of your confession. But as you continue to confess the biblical gospel, and as works even vaguely reflect something of the truth of that, rejoice. You prove to be my disciples. One of the great results of all this is that we are loved with a divine love, even with a dying love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you. Divine fatherly love for the Son in all his obedience and glory, that same love, in a sense, is set on us. Is set on us? We receive that? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Has it dawned on you ever that Jesus has shown his love to us and loves us in a way he doesn't love angels. The elect angels don't know his love like we know his love, not experientially and not redemptively. He laid down his life for his friends. His friends is one way of describing the result of those who received the benefit of his life laid down for them. But Romans 5 talks about us in a previous state. And it says there that he died for his, what? Enemies. For his enemies. Romans 5 makes the argument, some friends would actually die for a friend. It's pretty rare, but it, you can imagine it. But Jesus showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He laid his life down. And hence, there's intimacy. There's communion. Don't you see that implied throughout all of John 15 that we're looking at tonight? You see relationship. Yes, there's conviction. You have to get the right Christ and get the right gospel, not another one. Yes, there's connection. It has to be real and genuine. It has to be a branch on the vine, not a branch sitting off to the side trying to be connected, but one connected. There's conviction. There's connection. There's also commitment, yes, there's some resolve here, and yet there's also communion, and not one of those without the others, not one of those by itself. You can't pit one of those against the others. You can't have conviction without communion. You can't have connection without commitment. You can't have commitment without communion. There's intimacy, communion, relationship, because we're not servants, but we are friends. Friends, and we know what the master is up to. We have joy, verse 11. Don't forget that. We have joy, his joy, and full joy. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Don't miss the fact there that what he has spoken is given to us for our joy. 
It's what he's spoken. Go to the word for joy, for his joy and full joy. Ponder the reality that we have prayer. That we can go boldly to his throne of grace. We can ask anything according to his word and according to his will. Ponder how mind-blowing it is that we're friends with the king of the universe. That we have his joy. We've been told his plans. And we can talk to him whenever we want. There are degrees of knowing people, aren't there? You could say, I, I know Barack Obama. And then I'd say, does he know you? And you go, no, but I, I know who he is. I mean, some people maybe never have heard of him on the other side of the planet or something. I, I know him. I know who you're talking about. Or, you know, I could say, I know John Piper. I know who he is. He, I think he recognizes me when I see him. Uh, I always reintroduce myself. And it's always sort of awkward. But, you know, it, <laughs> he knows me, kind of. My wife knows me way better. I know her way better. There's degrees of knowing, aren't there? We can know Christ as friend. We can have the Father. And we can believe that the gospel is spreading, even sometimes when it's spreading despite us, not, not with us. So let's quickly put this all together before we turn to the Lord's Supper. There is an inextricable connection between certain themes in this passage that we have to notice. For instance, there's an inextricable connection between the Father and Jesus. They're the same. They, they go together. And there's a connection between us Christians and Jesus. Like branches and vines, they go together. There's an inextricable connection between union with him and obeying him. Between obeying him and loving him. Between friendship with him and him dying for us. Between communion with Christ and knowledge of his word. Between union with Christ and union with all those who are in him. We can't love Christ and not love his people. There's an inextricable connection between his word and prayer. We dare not make these enemies or pit them against each other or like one and not another. There's an inextricable connection between growth and the pain of being pruned. None of this is apart from effort, and none of it is owing simply to effort. We all have the real temptation, if not the real problem, of fake fruit. Do you find yourself tempted to look like a, let's imagine, a tree? Instead of tree with real fruit on it, 
You're a tree that has that wax fruit, that, that fake fruit you got around your house. You got one of those dishes with a bunch of plastic red apples in them. Imagine, if the goal is to bear fruit, we can imagine getting these plastic red apples and gluing them on our arms or something, walking around and thinking, yeah, look, I'm bearing fruit. It's just fake. Is it real? Are you on the vine? How do you know? Do you have doubts tonight? Talk to a friend. Talk to someone you came with. Are you languishing on the vine? And you're really on the vine. You maybe don't know. God knows. Let's say you're on the vine, but you're languishing with unconcern. And maybe you're not on the vine. And that unconcern will continue and continue until you find yourself a dried up stick detached from the tree. It was never real to begin with. Are you bored of prayer? Are you stagnant in his word? Do you find it hard to love him? Do you think he doesn't love you? Where's the Holy Spirit right now pointing his finger? What nerves is he touching on in your life? Are you bearing fruit? When's the last time you actually communicated the gospel to someone who wasn't a Christian? I don't mean you said you're a Christian or you went to church on Sunday or, or you don't cuss like the other guys at work. I mean, when's the last time you actually got through the gospel with someone without, without wavering, without fear, without doubt. We need more boldness, don't we? And we all fall very short. And we all in this room should feel some measure of conviction about things like prayer, the word of God, witnessing in this world, communing with our Savior. We should all have some measure of guilt and we should all together run afresh to the cross where Jesus died in our place and remind ourselves once again he laid his life down for his friends. His grace is greater than our sin. Communion is what we call it. We can have communion, communion, with union, with Christ, and through him with others. And we do that through his word, through prayer, through obedience, yes, in fellowship, in friendship with him. And one way in which we express our communion, find our communion, and enjoy our communion with Christ and each other is in the Lord's table. That's why we're here tonight. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a sharing, a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a communion, a fellowship, a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake 
of one bread. So we have communion with Christ. We connect with his people and we grow together through these ordinary means of grace. Bible reading, prayer, Lord's Supper. Like Acts 2 says, apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Like the old Sunday school song says, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. There's no secret. There's no 2.0. There's no advanced program. There's no steroid version. There's no accelerated program. It's just the ordinary means of grace, day in and day out, slowly bearing fruit, sometimes taking steps back, finding his grace once again, fleeing to him, finding comfort again. Would you tonight, if you find yourself inadequate but saved, to flee to him, to abide in him, to rest in him, to trust in him, and not think that you need some sort of season of success before you're ready. Because we don't believe in moral improvement. That's not the gospel. That's not our Savior's way. We can confess our sins boldly tonight, and we can flee to the Savior.